my name is Melissa Huang. I am the manager of content, education, and inclusion at Disney Branded Television. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Thank you for coming on. Uh, we have connected a long time ago, and we are finally here. Um, we are. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, it's an honor. Kenneth, like what you do is so important. And like a, a month ago, I had introduced two people who I met at the film fest that we went that I, that I went and saw you at. And um, there were two people who were in the same like realm of work, but had never met each other. And I was introducing one to the other. And I just said, like, hey, listen to the Vietnamese podcast that she did. And it like um, skipped and saved us a lot of time of like the intro. So like from a very pragmatic point of view, like when I introduce people who have been on your podcast, then I just say, hey, listen to their stories. When you meet, you can just like have elevated the conversation already. So if you need like any accolades, like I have legit used your podcast to network people from like a different point of vantage point. So they have like way more to talk about. And it was just like firing. It kind of like gave a boost and a spark so that they didn't have to start from like nothing, you know, like, oh, well, what do you do? Like kind of elevated to a different point, like two people in entertainment. So I don't know, from like a very, I, I think in a very pragmatic and efficient way. Um, so if you need any like proof that you're doing something good, that's one thing you can hang your hat on. Melissa, thank you for the kind words. They're appreciative. So as a manager, and we'll get into how you even got there, but as a manager at Disney, I can imagine the mountain of protocol. I always think about Disney and protocols, right? And that you're faced with, as a manager of content, education, and inclusion at this big company, the Walt Disney Company, um, do you go through courses or do they sit you down and run like a bunch of training that you have to go through to understand what this stuff is all about? Well, it's a good question. Like, so it's a great question. I think that um, from a very formal point of view, I did have to, like their Disney is very formal about like compliance training so it's very um standardized across the board like the information that gets delivered to its employees from like what i do on my day-to-day i think that is a little more nuanced i think that is more reading the room that is more like you going out and networking and asking around and building relationships to find more about what you do um I think that um, there is a lot of protocol and I want to say that you finding out about the nuances of the protocol is a big part of the unwritten part of your job. Mm. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's how I would phrase it. It's kind of complex the way the entertainment industry runs. And I feel like I'm still transitioning to that. Um, from teaching so teaching I think there was a lot more autonomy with what you could do because you had like your own classroom and you kind of are like the one that's facilitating everything 
I think Disney is such of a company that is so big that knowing the protocol and knowing like where you fit into that protocol and when to be creative about stepping out of that and stepping back in is um, a very valuable skill to learn. Can you tell me about your day-to-day? First of all, day-to-day, like what exactly is it day-to-day? And then what is the primary purpose of this idea of managing content education inclusion at the Walt Disney Company? Yeah, so I mainly work in preschool television. And so Disney has a branch of kid content called Disney Junior, and that's the space that I work in. And my day-to-day is managing a slate of their content to make sure that it is that has educational value and that it's appropriate for kids. So from like answering emails about, hey, like, could you give notes on this outline or this script to um, the inclusion side, which is making sure that stories that have representation of, say, like Asian or Black or Latinx stories or like elements to the stories are authentically uh, represented. So I know that sounds a little bit up in the air. And and I think that it's almost a new concept because preschool television is a new frontier. Like I think I would argue that post-COVID, the need and the welcoming or like the welcome of preschool content has completely opened up because parents of young children have had to choose between hey like my kid can either go outside and be exposed to like COVID or like there was a necessity for them to I don't know if yeah I know you had like had have kids who are now grown up but when they're in this very young age you kind of like need them to stay still for just a hot second while you do what you got to do. But I think post-COVID, the uh, frontier for preschool television, like Coco Melon and Bluey, like completely, completely opened up. So my very specific job at Disney Junior is to give notes and do focus testing for the content that Disney Junior puts out. It sounds like... uh work that is phenomenal i i i think i would really enjoy it but i'm i'm sure every job looks rosy from the outside um is that something that you all had aimed to be at like this is something like disney and doing that position with something or were you just always wanting to get into the entertainment business and here's a portal that opened up for you oh my gosh um i like my mom has this saying called and, and like she said it to me once when we like got a parking spot and it's um it's like it's hen, you know and like so this the i like so loosely translated is like skills are not as like important as luck sometimes and i think you can really like get into that saying um from like a macro point of view with like privilege and stuff But I think for me, I kind of, I made the right connection and was at the right time or at the right place at the right time. And as cliche as that sounds, like I feel like at one point in my teaching career, it had planted a seed um, 
that when the pandemic hit and I was, and a lot of teachers, not just me, but all teachers were kind of forced to move education online. They planted the seed of like, oh, okay, so here I am entertaining and educating kids like through a screen, you know, and it's still pretty effective in that way of um, like being able to convey something. But at that point, I was like, well, I'm competing against like TV for them. And I kind of just thought about that for a little bit. And the curriculum I was teaching, technology and innovation, was easily translatable to the screen setting and like being able to share my screen and say like, hey, you share your screen. Let me see what you're doing. And so the I like I think my relationship with the screen to young children had changed. And I know it sounds a little bit lofty, but I think it planted a seed in me like, well, what if there was an education department in entertainment and like the like Disney sits in Burbank and I had I had my daughter like across the street like six years ago and I had always kind of thought about it I didn't know if Disney ever ever had an education department but I had fortunately made a friend with a mother who had worked at Disney for 20 years and happened to know the VP of my department and I just asked her straight up once I was like hey does Disney have an education department she said they do I think I think your skills now would easily transfer over and let me introduce you to that VP I know you're shaking your head and like I know what you're thinking and it's that it it was like that if I hadn't asked that question if I hadn't asked and I hadn't met that mom and hadn't been really good friends with her. Like it, but Melissa, now people haven't. What you you know, honestly though, this happens in so many of my conversations. This idea of yeah, luck. yeah this idea of luck and being at the right time, at the right place, and things just happening for people, and they end up in these careers. You would be so surprised to hear that. I would say it's over 50% that people fall. It's rare that you hear anybody. That, and that's why I asked the question, because it's like rare that you hear go, somebody goes, oh, yeah, I wanted to do that when I was like two years old. It just never happens. It's just people fall into these like wonderful career paths because of like these ideas and then, you know, serendipity. And then they just find themselves on these paths. So the idea of luck is highly uh highly underrated in conversations. Yeah, I agree with that. And then like, I think for, um, I think it for, for, as I, I'll speak just for like an Asian American woman, like it doesn't feel sometimes like we have the opportunity to get a bite of that luck. Cause I feel like sometimes with my parents, and I talk a lot, like when I went, like I met so many great people from that event um the the film festival launch I met so many good people and and we the conversations we have together as like specifically Vietnamese almost sometimes millennials like that's who we are like who I um reach out to and like happen to talk to is just the idea of risking and just taking that like creative leap of like ask the question like it's okay to ask a question that may have an I don't know answer to I think that leap for our for our um for the friends I've made in the Vietnamese community who have made it into the or creative field um that that mental leap is like a hard one to train and I think yeah 
yeah. And I think sometimes it, I would say, yes, like it, it was so lucky that I asked that question to the right person, but if I hadn't even thought of asking it, I wouldn't even have the opportunity to like find this, I feel like needle in a haystack of a position that I, that I, that I really like. (laughs) Um, But yeah, thank you for making that point. And um, I, I do, I do feel very lucky. And at the same time, I feel like sometimes it's like stars have aligned and like, if this didn't happen, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, then like, where would I be? But I, 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 yeah, it's an interesting place to be in an interesting like position to find myself in. You know, but just by knowing you this last year um, and, you know, running into you at several events, I, I watch you and I understand sort of like the way you operate, um, you build relationships. I've watched that uh, and I've experienced that myself. So it might not just be an accident, but it is something that you internally are are, are driven towards. And I say that uh, with the next question, because I usually reserve this to the end, but so what, now that you've been doing this for a little bit, what bigger picture do you see yourself heading towards in the next 15 years? Oh man. I mean, I thought about that. Because look, if let's be honest, the possibility of what you've done has opened up, right? It's like, holy shit. You, you get a glimpse behind the curtain and you're like, wait, that's the way it's operating. And so I want to know right now what you are seeing for yourself in the next 10, 15 years. I mean, I like when I first joined and I was like, oh, like my goal is just like kind of to get a credit. <laughs> I know that I don't know how that's going to work, but I, um, my daughter and I, when we watch TV now we like watch the credits Mm -hmm. and I know like sometimes what I do is I look out for the Vietnamese names (laughs) and um I I, it is kind of insurmountable the roles that are in entertainment I think I'm going to stay in entertainment for at least the next 10 years I imagine um I like dream wise like it would be like awesome to be a part of developing or writing like a show that has like a primary like Vietnamese character like a series that has like done right you know because I've like I've met a bunch of people who I've so honored like I feel so honored to like even just hear their ideas and see their work but I think in my very like niche space like for kids young to to see how normal it is to have like a Vietnamese person in like a very like highly produced show is like a normal thing. And to, for them to see like Vietnamese names represented in the credits, like a very normal thing. Like, I think that's what I want to do. Like, that's kind of my goal. I don't know if it's writing or producing or show running, but that's kind of my goal. I think it's a very niche space, <laughs> um, but I think, like 10 to 15 years, I just want to see like, because I, I, yeah, I, I've kept my like maiden name um, post-marriage and I, I want, I want there to be like a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that when you have intentions like that and you are in the space of a 
a studio lot, there's a lot yeah. that can happen. You know, yeah. one of those things, yeah. a lot that can happen. You're, you're, they put you on the field or they put you on the court and you're playing ball, you know, and they coach puts you in a few games and, you know, and it's off to the races after that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and it's, it's, I would be lying if I like, Oh, it's not intimidating at all. I, I, I see, I've been here for a little over a year and a half. There are people who have been here for like 10, 20 years. And I feel like every day I'm doing catch up like every day. And it's not like a bad thing. I feel really as if it's an opportunity to run faster, to find a create like a more creative or innovative way to get to that, to get to the goal. Okay. Can I ask you something? What, when you say every day you're striving to catch up, right? Like I understand what that, I understand what that means, but I want to kind of hear you break it down. Well, what are you lacking or what are you running to catch up with? What kind of information, what kind of know-how, what kind of shit are you trying to accumulate that you feel like? Yeah. 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 I think it's like the history of, preschool television and like the people and the names that like so when I was teaching like I memorized like 300 names like all kids names and I in these conversations in the room and people are just like dropping names and I'm just like they're dropping names and I'm like I think I know that name and like I have to make a mental note and the catch-up is like getting the context getting their backstory to know yeah what what how they're talking how everything like because I feel like I feel like Disney and many other studios you hear about the news about your company from external it's the internal stuff unless you're like high level I don't think you get like the the information that's like broad and 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 so these conversations that happen and people just casually drop like a oh you know so-and-so would be so good at this this game like we I went to like a holiday lunch with a team um just right now and it's a team of writers and it's our creative team and they were just throwing names around Ken and like I think if 10 years ago like I know a friend I know a friend on my team or I have a friend on my team and she's been in the industry at least like three or four years and she knows all these people that they're talking about and I'm like okay, I need to just know people. I need to know people. And I think I need to hone in on like, who do I think has good taste and meshes well with me? Because they are the ones who will, like, I will bring their name in a room. They will bring my name in a room. Just like, oh, you know, like if someone mentions my name in a room, that's like in a positive light. Like, I think that's the highest currency (laughs) in this industry. And I think the catch up I play is, the context of where people move and why and the stuff that doesn't get written down in emails that is like very kind of like high high level information um and just like knowing who the key players are who are making the decisions and knowing how the game works like almost like the like if you're playing a board game the ones who know like the secrets of like (laughs) the game of how to manipulate things yeah you know i um I was in that world in 1999 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, Tell me everything. Junior and at USC. And um, I was in the boutique literary agency route. And I had a lot of older guys who told me that's the where you have to go. So I was in those seats for like, you know, at, as a, at a desk being an assistant. And I um I got roasted in those years. And what somebody didn't tell me in those years was you have to grind it out for a long many years like maybe five years so you can fully 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 remember the names fully remember the positions think about what the strengths of these people were and so you can make it all like your own special sort of like synergistics and you're synthesizing the way the world works and it's a very it, it seems like a, a tall order but i wish somebody would have explained it to me because you seem to get it you seem to understand that the catch-up is really studying the gears, right? And there's like probably thousands of gears of people that are making this world spin. And once you sort of get the gist of who these people are, and it's a big world, but it's manageable, but it takes years to kind of like to learn. Unless you say to yourself every night, I'm going to go home for two hours and I'm going to study and write on like a big digital whiteboard and put down names and how everybody's connected because that's the way a lot of agents assistants get ahead and then ultimately become big producers and, and showrunners. And cause it, it requires a lot of work. Yeah. And it's a lot of like, cause I think I'm at a place in my life where a part of me doesn't like, okay, let me move back in my twenties. I was very concerned about if people liked me, like, yeah. Everyone wanted, everyone needed to like me. I will say whatever I could to get to please people. And like, I think part of me still does that. But I think I've reached a place in my life where like my expertise matters. And I know that not everybody is going to like me. And not to say that I won't be polite and respectful to everybody. But like, I, 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 I think that to choose your time wisely with the people you think are going like you, you have to almost like invest time in a relationship with a person, you know, is going to like take you where you want to be. And like, for me, I think I'm doing it concurrently to figuring out what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But so I think, I think, you know what you want to do. You want to, you want to make a difference in producing producing words and, and, and visuals on screen. Yeah. For children. You want to for children, like specifically for children. <laughs> yeah. You want to affect the, the narrative um, out there. And um, you know, I, I think it's important that there are more people like you that are um, in that sort of um, intention um, to, to, to do that because we need it. We need it here in the United States. Yeah. And, and when we can affect it here in the U S the capital, of the entertainment industry, it just goes worldwide after that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I honestly, like, I think preschool and children's television has so much um, potential to change minds. Like, I think that, I mean, from, from teaching, I know the hard part of, you know, seeing growth in their development or, you know, um, just skills and stuff. But I think that children, like you have so much opportunity to change their minds and to really like make them see that, that their stories matter 
that the story, like that what they see on the screen matters. Like if they see someone that looks and acts like them on the screen, like they, they feel like they matter. And I think like with teaching, of course, like I'm able to influence a classroom of kids. But I think the reason I moved to this role was to make a bigger influence, right. hopefully, because more people can, more kids can see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no. Oh, and, and I, yeah, go on. Good, good. Oh, I was, I thought of this pitch the other day of like, because I think a lot of the entertainment industry is also like how to pitch yourself. And so I think like, how do you stand out and how do you pitch yourself? And I, okay, and I, I, I want to practice it on you. But um, so, you know, I used to be a teacher teaching innovation and technology. So I used to teach kids how to use a mouse. And I, now I work for the house of mouse. So Very that's cool. like, that's smooth, smooth pitch. Now, Thanks, man. I've been working on it. Now, uh, you sound like uh, from my from where I'm sitting and correct me if I'm wrong. You sound like somebody who is like an officer, like a police officer. You go in, you right. I mean, let me let me just. Yeah, true. No, it's totally right. Yeah, right? yeah. I think kind of the rule like, hey, yeah, yeah. You, you keep people in line and you keep these um, development people and all these people in line. And you're like, OK, but how seriously are your notes taken? Because I can imagine the creatives on the other side going, you know, they're like, they're like cringing because they're just like, why do we have to uh, kowtow to this officer's uh, viewpoint where we, and we are maybe many times they don't agree with it. And so how seriously are your notes taken and how do you know if they're being taken or changed or contents being uh, moved around because of your notes? Yeah, I that's such a great question. And I think this goes back to like building that relationship with the showrunner and the team. And I think so like the other day I went to because all like the holiday, the holidays bring up um, or just just have like the, all the show teams have like holiday parties and, stuff, and you go to them and like it is like your opportunity to make an impression and be like, hey, I'm here to like help you tell your story. And I think a big part of making sure that the note gets taken is them knowing from where you where you come from and how you can benefit them. You know, and so I try to say like, hey, like the in my opinion, like the purpose of a story, a show, an episode is get kids from like one place to an elevated place you know, for them to experience something. And I just tell them like, when you're going on a train and the train is moving, if the train is too fast, the kids can't get on to experience what you're trying to show them. So you have to make it at a really appropriate, I guess, speed for them to climb on and stay on to get to the level and to the place where you want to take them. Um, it's easy to like, it's such a dance because it's so easy to go in full force and just be like, you need to change all this up. But at the end of the day, I think like you have to build up to that. You have to build up to like, I'm, hey, so, I, I'm, I'm so curious with this answer because for me, like these scenarios are like in my mind now, like what I'm thinking is like, who is policing the whole team to say, I, you, you, you got to listen to Melissa now, right? Her notes make sense. Is there 
a boss on top of you and the uh, showrunner, producer, writer? Is, is there somebody who's like the judge who's like, all right, let me weigh the two ideas out. Uh, I'm going to favor in, 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 in Melissa's favor. You got to do this and you got to go with her, her notes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like ultimately it is the showrunner's decision, but I think that sometimes and the proof is in the pudding sometimes like if a show does really well and like there's another team that does their own research on like how well a show does we sometimes are able to compare that to all the reports that we do for the for the testing of the series that we've done in the beginning and we can point to say like hey we've like kind of talked about simplifying the themes we've talked about simplifying the language we're, we've talked about limiting how many words are on a page for preschoolers. And I think ultimately it really like lands on the creative executives who I support. And they're the ones who are responsible for the show making money. And I think if a show isn't making money or doing well, it's like the network's responsibility. And like my notes and the creative executives notes are considered network notes and so it's like our fault if we didn't like say enough notes to make the show relatable appealing and comprehensible to kids so it's interesting it's interesting it's kind of like this dance yeah certain teams work in certain ways like i think there's a team that i work with and they they always they always take the note they always take the note and there are certain there was a team that didn't take the notes and then the creative executive kind of like cleared house and was like we're getting a new team wow because that team was toxic and they just didn't they were like rogue. Well, i didn't know i didn't know like what it was but it was just like they the notes weren't being taken so it was you know met with a little bit of so there is a lot of like i guess power to what the network has to say because they're the ones that are like finding it. it. Yeah, yeah, they're finding it. So yeah, when when I think about you also in the role of a police officer, right? It's like the best analogy in my mind. Right? Like, you're driving around a. Are you driving around in a patrol car or are you like the FBI where the studio or the showrunner is? You're assigned to each project and you have to make your rounds per show and you have to you're like a safety officer you have to show up and you have to get notes or do you just get calls from the producer and they're like hey melissa we have questions and troubles can you come out and sit with us you know how does this work yeah so we're like pretty fully embedded in the process um specifically at disney jr so we're pretty like the outlines come through like we're on the distro and like it's pretty like notes. we yeah we send our notes after so um i think in preschool television it's very structured in that way yeah. and that was all kind of set up by the people above me who likes you know had relation had a good working relationship with the people running disney junior for example um and i think the process of us writing our notes right after is kind of like the kind of where our legitimacy comes from. Um, we have a very specific job of also like 
doing focus groups. So we test stories between outline and version one, and we write a report on that story that they kind of, so like that's kind of where we make the biggest impact on the story, um, on this whole series. And yeah, I mean, I think in my opinion, there are other studios who take education a little more seriously. Um, but I think with preschool television, there's a lot more like almost um, guardrails because preschoolers are kind of a different animal. Like, you, like they are a different type of brain that you need an expertise, uh, a person with expertise to like almost look at the language of the story rather than like, yeah. Absolutely crazy that Disney has that in place because now I'm thinking about the sort of like the skill set that you have for a decade as a teacher in a classroom and then the serendipitous nature of you being transplanted into that environment to like structure content so it is palatable for these preschoolers yeah pretty crazy and you got to be good at like writing up these reports and explaining like why you are sort of logically breaking the ideas down right that's exactly right like logic is very much like hey you said it this way we need to break it down a little more to make it in the language of the kid yep. yeah and then so the creatives kind of are more in charge of the story and like the consistency of the characters and like because it's a disney branded show making it Disney branded, like making sure the elements of the story follow Disney's pillars of um, excellence or like their core values in a sense. Do, do you, um, are you at liberty to talk about which shows that you work on? I'm able to talk about the shows that are like current, but the ones in development, like not Okay, so you much. cannot, okay. Yeah, well, so. What, what, yeah. Yeah, go on. I think about like these shows that my children who one's a TK and one oh, yeah. uh, a first grader now, but I, I think about like the shows that they watch growing up, like you think about Blippi, right? And you yeah. think the popularity of Blippi because he's like right preschooler, uh, love him. How the heck did that guy, I don't know if you know who Blippi is or if you follow. Oh, absolutely. My son loves him. Yeah. Yeah. How the heck did that guy reach the numbers that he reached? And um, I, when I think about what you say to me, all the words uh -huh. that you're me about the, 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 the guardrails and everything, he yeah. falls in line with all this stuff. If you think. Totally. He speaks the language of preschoolers in a way that is so, uh, I don't know him personally. I only watch it because my son watches it, but he fills a niche niche that is like has never been filled and does it so well. And I I need to look up like what his background is and stuff, but he just goes to like places and he's like, oh, and this is what you could do in a ball pit. And my son is obsessed about ball pits now, you know, and um, he just has like an energy that is almost like for us adults, we cannot understand why it's watchable but i don't know how he was able to get crack it yeah to crack it into like 
this is what will keep them watching. Cause that's kind of what preschool television is. Like, can you have this be more Watch like watchable than like playing with this like ear pod thing? Yeah. You know? And and I would really credit Blippy for my children's mental development. I'm it sounds so weird to say that, but they recognize different things in life as a result of watching Blippy. And I yeah. know that, you know, uh family members 10, 15 years ago that were, you know, preschool age and they didn't have the internet. They weren't like my yeah. children. I don't think my children are any smarter than those kids. It was just the exposure that my kids have to, uh, a, you know, a thing like Blippi. But I think about Disney and what you do. And then this guy Blippi just out of the blue is like competing with like a Disney financed show. That is crazy. The amount of support yeah. that he puts into their product. Yeah, that and I think Miss Rachel does super well as well. She's like, a, I think she's a next teacher preschooler and she works specifically on speech. Yeah. And she has done something that similarly like fills a niche where, I don't know, you, you, you just get very specialized in a very specific thing that, 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 that um, the world doesn't know it needed. Yeah. And it's, Again, with the timing, like I'm sure he had thousands of hours and tens of years of developing until he got to a point where when he published, it was like the timing of it, like kids needed to see what outdoors was like because it was COVID. Like the time, like who would have known a pandemic was going to hit and who would have known that parents would have needed content that would expose kids to, I would say Blippi is like real positive colorful like simple you know and like going out and just go to parks which is what kids love to do it's like completely relatable but and like you can't science things and stem things that he does too. yes yeah. yeah exactly and like he writes songs and like i listen to some of those songs because my son is super you know interested in him and i was like these are really well-written songs as well so i don't know how he did it but it's a it's interesting to me that you pointed out because with entertainment, these like something can be run by like one person and one it can guy. be like, yeah, one person. Yeah. So it's like very interesting to compare that to a machine. Yeah. Like and that's exactly what I was getting at. Yeah. yeah. I want to uh, switch up a little bit and talk about this idea of innovation. Um, I think when I think about Vietnamese in Vietnam 20 years ago, um, and I think about even Vietnamese now, our culture. Um, and I think about like, we have innovation too. But when I think about like the bigger picture of America as the as the granddaddy of innovation and smaller countries mm -hmm. like Vietnam or or smaller Southeast Asian countries where we don't have the resources, we don't have a lot of things, but what we, um, what America is really gifted at um, maybe not academics um, as much across the board. If you measure for all these, uh, um, you know, scores, it's not it's not the top. But when it comes to innovation, uh, you, the U.S. is damn near at the top. And for somebody who handled that part of development of a young person for all those years, what is the thing that is most important when we're raising these little kids as it relates to thinking about innovation? Oh, man. Okay, well, first of all, I'm going to dissect that a little bit. I would argue 
and this is maybe just biased, but I would argue Vietnam is a very innovative culture. And I feel like a lot of innovation comes from, first of all, age, like urgency, like you have to do it or um, and or constraints. So like having like like a set amount of tools or materials you have to use from or use from. And um, I I think I'll answer that question and then I'll go a little bit more into what I mean. But when I taught innovation to kids, a lot of it is fewer words from the teacher. Oh, shit. Like, I mean, oh, yeah, man. So mm -hmm. so you, you set the constraint on yourself to use as few words as possible to get them to do more talking than you and to do for them to do more thinking than you. So like when I, so I had presented on this at a conference with a coworker of mine, it was like innovation through constraints. Damn. And that, what? that is, it's so counterintuitive, right? But it's so uh, on point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like in a world where there's hyper words, hyper stimulation, you know, like everything is everywhere and you can read everything. You can scroll everything what you need for innovation is like fewer words in a prompt, you know, and fewer things that the kids need to work with. And sometimes it's more than a room and it's more of a, like the goal is for a mindset. You know, you have this finite time in, in the world, what are you going to do to create? And with innovation, I think like the urgency is also really important. I think like Vietnamese people have an urgency to innovate and have had to have an urgency to innovate too. And I know this is kind of a weird ex um, example, but I took my mom to a work trip once and she had like a water bottle, but she didn't want to carry it. So just like put a string around it and like put it on her, on her, on her shoulder. And like, I know it's kind of a kind of cliche or uh funny example but like I, I I think about my mom a lot when I think about innovation and I think like she had to be innovative and she had to be create new ways to think and new ways to raise her kids and new ways to like live a life and I think the kids that I taught I you know in like a private school setting sometimes there's not an urgency so you kind of have to create that um, and as a teacher, like my goal at the end of, um, like end of my five years of teaching, my goal was to, and I wish I had like done more recording of myself so I could like type out, but I wanted to see what happens when you say fewer words to kids to see how much more they, they're able to innovate. Yeah. Like, cause I think a lot of teaching these days, traditional is like you fill the kids up with your knowledge, but innovation is flipping that over and like really humbling yourself to being like, I don't actually know the answer to this question and to this prompt. So you need to do the work to do it, you know? And, and, and then it's more of like a process of like, well, how did you get to that idea? If you had more time, what would you add? And what was something you learned? And that's like, the basis of innovation teaching, in my opinion. So that's kind of like, um, there was no textbook on teaching innovation, but there were like 
books called um, like Lifelong Kindergarten that I read that really kind of promoted that idea of just how to promote creativity and innovation in teaching. Um, that's you know, I, uh, I heard recently in another podcast, I think it was a Freakonomics podcast about uh -huh. um, the statistics of how your kindergarten teacher, the amount of years in teaching service that she had related to like for every year, it was like some study done, crazy study for every year that the kindergarten teacher had an experience was an extra thousand dollars after 30 years old for the student. Like they track that. Get out. Yeah. But it's the, but I'm beginning to see like, it's little details, like what you just talked about. Like we don't think of like the word innovation as like teacher talk less, shut the fuck up. Right. We don't think about that because it's counterintuitive. But then when I think about it, the logic is all built into that because you prompt them with as little information, you know, as in little information as possible, and you allow them to prosper through their their digging up things, through their drive to figure out what to do and how to come up with messages and 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 how to come up with ideas and answers uh, on their own. And we yeah. are forced to do that as refugee, you know, people and. But I, I guess I, in the beginning of this conversation about innovation and, and Vietnamese people, I had a different kind of like, uh, I had a different thing that I was addressing, but I, I do like where you're going with this conversation a whole lot better because I can get in a little hot water. No, I want to hear what you're going to say though. I, I only meant it when it came to uh, rote uh, memory, memorization in, in Vietnamese classrooms. That's what I meant. Oh, okay. Um, in the sort of like the traditional channels of education in Vietnam as our parents' generation, even happening right now in Vietnam and China, it 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 really makes you want to just uh, carve out uh, and memorize things that just to, so you can pass to get to the next level. But it's not teaching for innovation. Now, yeah. that refugee population, you're absolutely right. We had to adapt and 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 be resourceful and mm -hmm. we needed a sense of urgency to survive. So yeah, it's two different kind of topics that we that we're we're talking about here. Yeah. But I do like I do wonder um about innovation when it comes to like pleasure. Like I I really I really think about our people and like the heading towards innovation for like beauty. You know, and I think it's such an interesting thing to strive towards, because I think once you lose that urgency, you're able to think a little more about like design and think a little bit more about like streamlining things, yeah. which in innovation is very important. And I think innovation from urgency comes with so many like trip ups and mistakes and you don't have like the time to be thoughtful about it. And I think there's like a balance of like, you do need a little bit of urgency, but it's almost from a discipline, not necessarily like it ha it's there because the world made it there, in my opinion. Yeah. No, this is a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm just talking about, I don't know, I haven't dove um, into talking about innovation for a while. So I'm really like grateful you did that. It's, it's, it was, something I thought about so much for when I was teaching, like it was, um, and just like the, 
the 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 process being more important than the product. Like, yeah, I feel like we're in the middle of a TED talk almost. <laughs> Coming from you, that's high praise, man. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I mean, these are things that I I've never thought about. You know, the lack of um, you know, innovation is to to give instruction to a young child is the lack of words. That's the constraint that that will really get um his muscles going, her muscles going. But when you were saying like that Freakonomics thing about kindergarten, a good teacher will know the correct words to say in that order. And it, I'm not saying like teaching is performing at all. There is an aspect of it. But when you hone in on a script that you know, like years and years of years, that works on getting their kids, the kids like to really chew on, like that is good teaching. Good teaching can be spontaneous. And I think the best teaching is one that allows for spontaneity as well. But I think having that right balance of, and teaching is like, I, I have the utmost respect having been through it. It is such a hard thing to balance, like the good days with bad days. Or when I say good and bad, sometimes it feels like it's a bad day, but, you know, perspective. Um, but a good kindergarten teacher or any teacher, maybe specifically kindergarten because it's the first year of formal education, will know how to phrase something to get every or as many kids thinking as possible. Because I think it's a numbers game. In media, as like flowery and beautiful as it is, it's, it's hard to um, have every kid engaged all the time. But yeah. the best teacher or the, a good teacher um, at their best selves or as their best selves will, will know how to ask the most succinct, clear question or say the most succinct, succinct, clear thing to get the kids talking more than them and to get the kids learning from each other and not the teacher. Like you step away and if the if the class is still going and kids are still learning, like that is good teaching. Damn. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that should just be a parent's directive as well. You know, that's, that's my directive as a parent now, you know, like talk less and make them think more. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to do that because I think we're in an age of information and it's easy for kids to. And I think I, I gave a I gave it talking one of my highlights at um, at my team uh, last year and this year was I gave a talk about AI to the team about chat GPT. And it was honestly, it was like right before the writer's strike. So it was like quite relevant. And because it's an interest of mine, I think truly technology and innovation drives education. Like what technology can do drives what, because it's, it's the tools that those are the tools that, the, that people are going to learn to use to better society to better themselves. And it's a it's still a huge passion. Of mine. I wonder what the intersection is going to be like years down the line, if I'm still going to do technology within the entertainment industry or innovation within the entertainment industry and like children's programming, I wonder. But, um, but I still think about it a lot. I still think about like innovation and technology a lot. I have um, uh, a side gig that um, that has been in my family for many years, and um, we weave um, fabrics and textiles in, in Vietnam. It's a small operation, and um, I was going over uh, some some you know we're revamping some pricing and, and stuff like that with the team with my you know my factory manager here, 
and 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 somebody who assists him. And the three of us were in a meeting yesterday, and um, they're you know in their early fifties, and they're Vietnamese. Um, and you know, I was sitting there telling them that um, previous to the podcast, I was very afraid of technology. I didn't. I would have started the podcast ten years ago had I been more confident with microphones, with mixing boards, with computer laptops, like and editing. And as a result of doing the podcast, I've been forced to do editing, been forced to do Photoshop and really have had to like learn the language of like young millennials to get get by. And I'm super slow at all this because I don't do all that very well, but I've had to, to do it. And then I was like, you know, I'm working on the website for the company. And the reason I can do that now is because there's ChatGPT. Both of them looked at me as like, what's ChatGPT? And literally I had to put the brakes on the meeting. We were like an hour and a half in. I literally had to call my brother up and my brother in Vietnam is uh, ChatGPT AI. Like he's been on it for two years and this is all he does, lives and breathes it. He teaches at the university and he had to explain to these two wonderful people what ChatGPT was in AI. And then, so we started working on the prompts. You know, we have a, an account with ChatGPT. Yes, yes, yes absolutely mind blown and i suggest for audience anybody who's not played with chat gbt out there in the world gotta, you got to hop on it yeah. you got to learn this now or um yeah. 3 years yeah. from now we're, we're going to be in a sea of of lost yeah and i feel like here's the thing i think when i did the presentation i was met with such like this is like this you know we can't use it like da, da, da. and i think there are things that ChatGPT can't do, but the thing about technology and like specifically tools is unless you use it, you don't know what it is not capable of and you don't know what you as a human can do better than it. Because right. that's kind of that's kind of where innovation thinking gets really important is like, how are you going to use the machine to your advantage? How are you going to use the tool to your advantage? Because the given is, this is a free tool, you know, and it is going to democratize a lot of things. It's going to change a lot of education, but how are you going to use it to your advantage to, to, and use your human brain that yeah. you have to make it do what you want it to do? You know, and, and that's the thing, if we're talking about innovation and technology, giving the chat GPT as many constraints as possible is when you get the best results, in my opinion. Like if you're like a very open-ended question versus like, hey, I need this very specific thing, do it in 50 words, but make it friendly, you know, complaint letter, and then it does it. But if you miss one of those prompt uh I guess indicators or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Then 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 you're going in a different direction. But it, it, it's it's the it's the mindset of like seeing what it can do and what it can't do to that really puts you in a position of um like puts you in a position of advantage. But yeah, that's that's so awesome. So you were able to so what kind of prompts did you put in it that were that were so helpful for the um, website? I was just you know, you know, a big problem of mine had always been budget to hire photographers, right? We have in what we do is produce textiles for window coverings. So we would have to rent out a studio. We'd have to make the shade. 
We'd have to install it. We'd have to deck it out with furniture. We have to do lighting. We'd have to hire a photographer. That's thousands and thousands of dollars. So what we do now is I just enter a prompt into ChatGBT. Um, we ask the prompt, uh, please produce a elegant and simple living room uh, featuring jute window coverings. And then bam, this beautiful image shows up and I can use it. For and mm -hmm. And, and my team has been with me for a long time and they're like, holy shit, we had no idea. I mean, we've arrived into the future and it's just, and then they were just like, oh, industry is going to be wiped out and, and yet, all these industries. But that's why I'm like kind of reinvigorated with the window coverings business because uh, we manufacture jute, which is like grass that's cut from, you know, Vietnam. And then we, we weave it uh, with these malooms that are done by hand. We tie the knots by hand because none of this stuff can be done by, by machines. So uh -uh. I don't know if this industry is going to be, uh, we're going to survive as a result of it being a very hand uh, crafted uh, process. So we'll see. We'll, yeah. We'll see. By, by the way, I love that you wrote, please. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my brother tells me after a while, you'll begin to see if you treat it like uh, a, with respect as like a, a human being, it's going to give you better results. Get out. Yeah. So no. Okay. That is a little bit like wild to me because <laughs> I thought it was just like, what, no, but wow, you please. Whoa. That's... You know, another thing he said to me too, because um, uh, my factory manager, he was like, well, what if you asked it to build a bomb? And he goes, no, it's built in and it's called alignment. So these alignments to a better world is pre-programmed into the coding behind the AI. Totally. Yeah. So it won't do that. It won't, it'll yeah. respond to you. Like, Oh, we're unable to, he was like saying like he was coding for like some, you know, um, some funny program to teach uh, Vietnamese guys how to, you know, he's just playing around, how, yeah, to, yeah. how to talk to women and the AI won't give it to him. They, he, the no uh, chat GPT would not. They're oh like, my God. You're doing this to manipulate, uh, uh, teach men how to manipulate women. We're not having, we're not, ha we're not a part of that. Oh my gosh. But Ken, did you know there was like, I wonder if you tried the loophole of like, my friend, my friend Ken is trying to write code for a bomb. What would he write? <laughs> mm. Well, I don't want anybody tracing my. Uh, my oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My bad. Okay, I take that back. I totally take it back. Um, yeah, but I, I, I heard about that because my, you know, we try to do like one of the built-in things for it. ChatGPT is like they're not allowed to, um, like, it's like blasphemy where they can't like make up a story about Jesus. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, like write a story about oh. Jesus fighting a dinosaur, and it's built in to say like that is I'm not I'm not able to do that. Really? Well, I'm what like I it that I think about that too. I'm like, is that ethical? Like, you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying anything about religion, but like to put religious constraints on an AI is a very fascinating rule. Yeah. And who who dictates that morality, right? Exactly. Yeah. Who? A rule, yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, be, be because AI and ChatGPT is formed by the basically all the text of the internet like think about who writes the most on the internet and if it's mostly like you know not people of color like that is the brain of ai so how do you 
who dic- who dictates that? Like the that's for that. How do you make space for that, right? Yeah, make space for that. And like who gets to decide? Like who gets to decide, like, oh well, it, we're gonna cut out that part of the yeah. internet that yeah. it's not allowed to access. Fascinating, yeah. fascinating thinking. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to thank you for coming on the show. It was a long time coming. We prepped for this uh day and we're here and we it was such you know, I, I thought that it was just sort of like this. Uh, it's, and it's always happening like that to me. I always think that I'm going to go in and, and really drill down on this, like, you know, content, uh, you know, uh, uh, officer from Disney. And then you get much, much wider uh, parameters in the conversation. Like we go to AI, we go to innovation. So thank you so much for opening um, those doors uh, of conversation today. Oh, absolutely. And thanks for giving me the space. Like I totally value, I was looking forward to this. I totally value what you're doing. I'm telling you, Ken, like I, I think right now you're planting seeds. I think right now you're planting seeds for what people can know that Vietnamese people can do and opening, like almost like unlocking if you're saying this conversation opens open a lot of doors, I would say you're unlocking a lot of doors for other young minds of what they're they're able to do. So, thank you yeah. for the kind words. And then I'm sure we'll we'll revisit uh, our conversation in a few um, months and year or years. And yeah, yeah, totally Happy different to that with development and and your creative uh, journey. And I look forward. Thanks. To- thanks. Thanks. All right, Melissa. All right. Have a great day. I'll see you soon. Bye, Kenneth. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.